Uh, just quickly on uh, Dr. King. So I'm not bringing this up because of this, but it was actually my birthday yesterday. Um, and I share it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, big 3-1. Uh, that's 31. Um, so I, I share a birthday with Dr. King, and I always have. Um, and I think there was something because of that. You know, he was someone who early on in my life, he was like revered. Uh, again, like Dave said, a little bit of a whitewashed version of him, but I was very drawn to Dr. King. And, and so even through high school, started to read some of his work and I was like, man, that's a little different than what people are saying. But I wasn't like cognizant enough to put all the pieces together. So read a little bit more in college. Um, and then even as recently as last year, read for the first time, where do we go from here? Chaos or Community, uh, the last book that he wrote. And I just want to say, if you haven't read that book or any of his, his books, he, he is just so deeply formed my ethic toward life. Um, I think it's just so obvious how deeply he cares about the flourishing of life um, at every level, right? And so I, it's just someone who I, I, he is someone I want to be, right? Um, in terms of just like caring so deeply at every level, political, spiritual, so like uh, socially, just like that life and life abundant can flow freely from me and from other people. So I, I, yeah, I just really appreciate being a part of a church that celebrates that, that cares about history in a time where sometimes we're trying to rewrite aspects of history or ignore it. Uh, so I, ju I just am thankful for our church and thankful that we um, care about those things. Um, now, we're going to go ahead and go back to me now. Uh, I don't know if you know much about my life, but I am the oldest of four kids. Um, so like I said, I just turned 31 yesterday. And my brother, Jesse, is two and a half years younger than me, so he's 28 right now. Uh, my sister, Camille, is about to turn 17, so 14 years younger than me. And then my sister, Carly, turned 14 in August, so you can do the math. Um, same parents, just we had a big accident. Well, we didn't. My parents, that's weird. Um, there's just a big old gap in the middle, right? But having younger sisters means I have funny stories of what happened to them. I was about 17 when my uh, sister Carly was one, and so I would take her to the doctor. Everyone thought she was mine. We had to explain why that wasn't the case, but a lot of fun stories. Um, one is, so when Carly was four, uh, I asked her, I was like, hey, Carly's the youngest one. I was like, hey, what do you want to be when you get older? And she's like, Jimmy, I want to be 13. She made it. Um, she was like, if that doesn't happen, I want to be a rabbit catcher. So I think she has a bright future. Um, another time, she was about six or seven, and we were down. Were we married? No, we weren't married at this point. At least I was down. Um, and she, we were having dinner together, and she had just had a glass of Dr. Pepper. And she asked my mom for another, and my mom, my mom was like, no. So she asked my mom again for another glass of Dr. Pepper, and my mom was like, no. And Carly, just like a lot of people in the Bible, for a third time asked, can I have a glass of Dr. Pepper? And my mom was like, no. And Carly just bursts into tears, right, crying uh, at age six or seven. And she's like, all I want in life is Dr. Pepper. And you don't give it to me. Why don't you understand me? You guys can probably imagine my family is pretty dramatic. I'm the yeah, tame one, you know. Um, that's not true either. Uh, so me, I'm, I'm trying not to laugh. I'm trying to sort of give her some comfort in this moment. I was like, Carly, look, when you get to be an adult, you get to have all the Dr. Pepper you want. 
Well, that didn't work because then she's like, well, I'm not an adult and I don't get to have all the Dr. Pepper I don't or I want. And she's like, you don't understand me. You're an adult. I'm a kid. You don't know what it's like. Now, she didn't understand that, you know, how time works. I was a kid at one point. And so I explained, and this helped a little bit more. I said, you know, I was actually a kid at one point, too. It's hard to believe, but I get it, sister. Sometimes you don't, want, you, get, you don't get what you want, and it's not fair, but it'll make sense at some point. Or it won't, you just move on. I didn't say the last part. but So why did this help? I, th- I think there's a reality that when we've been there before, we know what it's like, right? And we can empathize. We can know the feeling a little bit better, and there's some comfort in that. My sister was just looking for someone uh, to understand and to empathize with her situation, and I a little bit was able to, even though I'm not a big fan of Dr. Pepper. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. It was mostly just an excuse to tell a story. But we are in the series, like I said, in the Gospel of Luke. And we're uh, doing this series. I think, so the first time I visited a Missio Day was about nine years ago, um, around this time. And it was in Missio Day Logan Square, which uh, is now with Humboldt Park. Uh, and so that's fun. And we were doing a series on Luke. And so that's really fun for me. And I... I just love that we as a church in a bit of still a new season are situating ourselves in the story of Jesus. Where we are in today's passage, which uh, Dave read this morning, is titled Jesus Being Tempted in the Wilderness. So let's quickly look at its context within Luke. So we're in chapter 4. Thus far, Mary is told of Jesus, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus. Uh, she sings the Magnificat. Jesus is born And then, as Dave preached last week, Jesus is baptized. And he spoke on one of my favorite verses in the Bible, which I have up here. So it's John 3.22. It says, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Right. Why is this important? Why is this one of my favorite verses in the Bible? Dave talked about this last week, but I'll hit on a couple of things. Mainly, it's because it, it's God speaking about who Jesus is, right? Like, I think Jesus already knew that. Jesus has existed forever, right? Jesus was not created. Um, he has existed forever with God. And so I'm pretty sure he knows how God the Father feels about him. So I think that this was said for us, right? So that Luke could write it down so that we could read it centuries later. And I think that's important because... We must be cognizant of what God says about Jesus, right? And I'm going to hit on that a little bit later, but we have to know what God the Father says of Jesus, the Son. I think another reason this is important, a bit of a side note, is because God now sees us in light of Jesus, of what Jesus has done, right? Jesus on the cross exchanged his righteousness, his perfection for our sin, so that we may be sons and daughters of God. So what does that mean? that we are sons and daughters of God, that God loves us, and God is proud of us, right? That's pretty insane, don't you think? Like, the God of the universe loves us and is proud of us as a result of what Jesus has done, as a result of us wearing his righteousness. All right, I got to keep on moving. What also happens in Luke, right before our passage today, is that they read the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I have it up here. I want to show you guys. So here's part of it, and then you want to go to the next page? So, as you can see, no one's trying to preach on the genealogy of Jesus, right? 
I think it would take half of the, the uh, morning to read this, right? And it's also pretty dry. It's like the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of Canaan. You know, it's like the son of, the son of, the son of. But it's obviously a really, really important passage or else Luke wouldn't include it. I think it's important in two major ways. The first way. Now, again, I don't know if I've told you this before, but I didn't grow up in a Christian household, uh, not even one that acted to, uh, like we were Christian. So I just kind of thought that the Bible was a list of rules to follow. And obviously the Bible has commandments, right? But in reality, the Bible is one long story, 66 books by 40 different authors, telling the story of God's redemption of his people through the life and death of Jesus, right? From the beginning pages, the story is about redemption through Christ. So the genealogy situates us, for some reason that's hard, in that story of redemption, right? The genealogy goes all the way back to God, to Adam, where it all began, where the first man, Adam, showed the necessity of the second man, Jesus. And the second reason the genealogy is so important is because it highlights the humanity of Jesus, right? What it's showing us is that Jesus has a family. He has a history. And so when he's born, it's showing that he's human. And this is really important for our sermon today. See, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. What does that mean, his humanity? It means he felt hunger. He felt sadness. He felt loneliness, pain, joy, sorrow, anger. You get the point, right? Jesus experienced what it was like to be fully human, which we're going to hit on later. And then the final sort of situating ourselves into Luke, it's important to know that this temptation is before Jesus started any of his ministry, right? So he was actually about close to my age, um, and this 40-day period kicks off his official ministry to the world. So I'm going to talk quick, or yeah, let's do the structure, and then I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. So the structure here, uh, if you weren't here the last time, actually, I think it was two times ago I preached, we were talking about the Lord's Prayer. I preached on uh, uh, the temptation idea, like keep us far from temptation, right? And I actually hit on this passage, uh, which is kind of funny. So if you weren't here, I'm actually going to do something very different. Last time, what I did was I looked at some common temptations that we sort of experience as Christians, and then the lies behind them. So the point being that with every temptation, there's a lie uh, that we're told that helps us not believe God at his word about what he said about us, right? And so I'm not going to do that today. It's not a bad thing, but my last sermon was a little bit of a us-focused, right? like a little bit more practical, what is true of temptation for us and what is the result. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at the passage and, and what do we learn about God? And the way I want to do that is by taking time to look at each part of the Trinity. So God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, right? Or as we sing every week, praise Father, I'm not going to sing, but praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, right? So if you look at the passage, that's just a little bit of the Trinity, yeah, um, we're going we're gonna to start with the Spirit. But before I do that, let me pray. Lord, uh, thanks for this morning. Thanks that I get to be up here and have the privilege of preaching, Lord. Uh, I do not take this lightly. Know that I get to, yeah, dive into your word, that we get to look at you together and just behold you. So, Lord, I pray that what is remembered this morning are not my words but yours, not my honor but yours, and not my glory but yours. 
Help me to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Amen. Okay, so if we look back at the passage, it says this. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, right? The Spirit, one of the main characters in the Bible, could be mentioned so quickly that I believe he and the implications surrounding him can be completely missed. Let me give you an example. I was reading Acts once, and I was doing this study, and they were like, read through the whole book of Acts uh, and write down like what is true or what, what is the point of Acts. So I did that uh, about a week later, and I was like, okay, here's what I've got. I was like, it's the starting of the church, blah, blah, blah. They're like, all right, now mark where you see the Spirit and then rewrite what you think it's about. And I'm like, man, Acts is just about the Spirit. And all we do is like we read over it because either it's uncomfortable or it's mentioned quickly, right? We're like, ah, it wasn't taught much about Spirit. I'm not really like a, I don't know, person who gets too deep into that, so I'm just going to keep reading, right? And I do the same thing. But the reality is the Spirit is it's a vital, important character in the Bible. And so what I'm going to do this morning is a little bit different than the other two, God the Father and God the Son. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of a layout of what is true of the Spirit for us, because I think sometimes our uh, beliefs about the Spirit, how much we talk about the Spirit, can be at a deficit in the American church. Um, so I, I just want to go a little bit more into like what is true of us, or what is true of our relationship to, this, to, uh, to the Spirit. You guys with me? Okay, so two words, I'm going to use it. And if you said no, uh, door, no, I'm just kidding. It's all right. Take, your, you know, take a nap, do what you need to do. Um, the, the two words I want to use this morning are indwelt and empowered. Okay, now these words aren't always necessarily directly used in the Bible to talk about the Spirit, but a lot of synonyms and sort of the ideas around them uh, are really helpful. So take that as you will. So let's start with indwelt. What is true of being indwelt? 100% of believers, followers of Jesus, are indwelt by the Spirit. Let me say that again. 100% of believers have the Spirit. Okay? Yeah. Now, this is uh, like a post-Jesus' death and resurrection thing, right? So, Because we have instances in the Old Testament where it's a little bit confusing, like the Spirit comes to Saul, leaves Saul, and so there's, there's a little bit of a different way the, the Spirit interacts there. So we're talking... Jesus says in Acts 1, like, hey, I'm going to go up, but before, or after I do, you guys should wait for the Spirit, and the Spirit will give you power, right, to be my, my disciples to all nations, right? So Jesus promises it, and what, what happens? Acts 2 happens, right, where the Spirit comes and indwells the people. So what does the Bible say about being indwelt? 1 Corinthians 3.16 says this, Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And the Spirit of God dwells in you. There's that idea of being indwelt, right? Why are we called the temple of God here? Pretty easy. The temple is where God's presence would come in Old Testament times, right? You guys remember the passage where Moses enters the temple. It's a tent at that point. They haven't built the temple. But he enters the tent, and it says that Moses talks to God as if he talks to a friend face-to-face, -face, right? And then it says that Aaron sits in there just in awe of that, and he would stay a little bit of extra time just because he liked how it felt right? And then Moses would come out, and his face was so shiny from the glory of God that he'd have to put a veil on, and the Israelites couldn't interact with him, right? Well, the New Testament says that that veil has been lifted, and not only has that veil been lifted, but we are now that tent. We are now that temple. There's no leaving or removing yourself from God's presence. If you are a follower of Jesus, even when you aren't following him perfectly, 
you have the Spirit of God in you. So the indwelling of the Spirit is God's presence with us at all times. Feel me? Are you with me? <laughs> I don't know why I said feel me. I don't usually say that. Uh, so the indwelling, yeah, I said that. Let's go ahead and read the next passage. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You guys are quiet this morning. Like, think about this. The Spirit is God's presence with us always. It's a deposit, a down payment, guaranteeing our inheritance, a.k.a. AKA, eternal life with God. The Spirit, thank you, the Spirit assures us that what God says about us, about himself, and about our relationship with him is true and that he will fulfill it all. He is fulfilling it and he will fulfill it. So this is true of all believers, not just the holy good ones, not just the preachers and the teachers. What percentage of believers are indwelt by the Spirit? 100%. Thank you. So then if 100% have the Spirit, why is the church so bad sometimes, Jimmy? Right? Like if we have the presence of God with us, why do we fall so significantly short? And that's where our second word, empowerment, comes in. The, the empowerment of the Spirit is when we, by faith, by faith, trust the Spirit with our thoughts, attitudes, and actions. A couple of verses. Ephesians 3, 16, 17. I pray that God, or that out of the rich, I'm going to restart. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Galatians 5, 16 and 25. So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Since we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Because we are indwelt, let us follow the spirit. Let us be empowered by the spirit. In other words, because we have the Spirit, we ought to follow his steps, right? I think sometimes we misunderstand this, and I, I think you can interpret this song, so I'm not knocking it, but I think you can interpret this song correctly, but I think sometimes we get these ideas from, you guys know the song, Holy Spirit? I think it's just what it's called. It's like, Holy Spirit, you are welcome. Well, it's like, he's already here, right? Like, he knows he's welcome. He's already here, Right? And so a, a reality, you can interpret that song as like, I am welcoming you more in my life, right? Like, I know you're already with me. I am indwelt by you. I am welcoming you more in my life. Um, an example, and it's not, a, analogies are never perfect when it comes to God, right? But uh, an analogy I've been told is, say, say you're a glass of milk, and we put like the chocolate syrup in, right? All of it just sort of settles to the bottom unless we stir it, Right? And in the same way, we kind of stay that like uh, 2% unless there's a stirring, unless there's by faith giving our lives uh, more to the Spirit. Does that make sense, that analogy? Thank you. And I want to be clear that like this is not a one-time thing either. Empowerment isn't. It's not like we stir it up and then we're chocolate milk for the rest of our lives. That'd be nice. Um, I don't know if it would be nice if we were... I don't need to go there. Um, but... <laughs> but... Um, the reality is, is it's a moment-by-moment moment thing. Like the stirring, the giving over to the Spirit, the empowerment of the Spirit is, is very much like a by-faith, moment-by-moment thing. Indwelt, one time, 100%. Empowered, moment-by-moment. Moment. 
So we ought to access that power to live the life we can't live in our own. In other words, God upheld his covenantal promise of redeeming us through the life and death of Jesus. Our promise, our end of the covenant, was to then follow him. And guess what? He upheld that end too, right? So he not only makes the promise here and then expects us to follow the promise, he gave us the power to also follow that promise in the Spirit. He upholds both ends of the promise, both ends of the covenant. So the question then becomes, Jimmy, right? How can I be empowered by the Spirit? And I've already said this, and you're going to be mad at me because it feels simple, but it's by faith. Galatians 3, Paul uses some choice words for the Galatians. He calls them fools. I didn't put it up there, sorry. For thinking that your salvation started by faith and doesn't continue by faith, right? How does this work? Now, I'm going to share a practical way with you how I've learned it. Um, Initially, it's like, Jimmy, this isn't in the Bible. This feels weird. And I want to say, it's called spiritual breathing. Um, Now, this is just a word picture for how to sort of practically do it. It's not like a thing that's in the Bible. Does that make sense? It's just a, a way for me to remember it. So how, what does spiritual breathing look like? Exhaling. It's confessing your sin the moment you become aware of it. Agreeing with God concerning it, that it is sin. Thanking for his forgiveness and making a choice to do that 180, right? And then what does inhaling look like? It's then surrendering, surrendering control of your life to Jesus and relying on the Holy Spirit in that moment, moment by moment, to fill you with his presence and power by faith. So it's essentially saying, Lord, I can tell where I'm falling short of your promises right here, and I want to do the right thing. Can you, by the Spirit, help me to do this, right? And a lot of people are like, well, then you're just going to have this awesome feeling, and you're like wearing Heelys, like sliding across the room. That's not true. I wish it was. I never had Heelys growing up. Um, The reality is that sometimes your feelings do change toward that thing. But oftentimes, at least my experience has been that they do not. And so the Spirit can change our feelings. It doesn't necessarily change our feelings. Part of that faith is still stepping out, believing in faith that the Spirit is empowering us. And that's really it, right? So why is this important? Why would I want to walk by the Spirit, and what does it have to do with the passage? First, why is it important? And I have this up here. Eternal life is not just a post-death reality. The Spirit enables us to experience and partake in that abundant life that I was talking about today. There's so much joy in communion with God, let me tell you. And yet, I am so quick to forget it. And yet, the Spirit can be so quick to pull me back in. So then, what does this have to do with our passage today? Well, I read it. It says, Jesus, full of the Spirit, think that means empowered, went to the wilderness. The Spirit's part of the story of Jesus' perfect life, right? We can see that Jesus relied on the Spirit, and then for some reason we think we can live the Christian life on our own. And I'll be honest, I think there's a lot more to this that I can talk about, but again, I got to keep on moving. So if you're confused about anything I said, you can come talk to me after. Make sense? (laughs) All right, moving on. We're now going to talk about God the Son. Now, this one's a little bit more obvious, Jesus' role in the story, right? He's the main character of the story who's being tempted in the wilderness. And so what I want to do is I want to look at the heart of these temptations and then what it means for us. So what is Jesus tempted with? The first one, I think, can be summed up as satisfaction. So Jesus had been fasting for 40 days 
in the wilderness, right? The devil, who is a liar, knows this, and what's his first promise? You can turn this stone to bread, right? You can meet your needs. You can be satisfied with this loaf of bread if you have one more cup of Dr. Pepper, right? His next temptation, power. The devil says, look, you can have all of this, Jesus. You can have the cities. You can have power over all of this. Just, uh, just worship me, right? Do we have the passage? Yeah. All he says is just, just worship me, right? No big deal. You notice how satisfaction is not a bad thing, right? Satisfaction is a good thing. Power is not a bad thing. It is more often used in, in worse ways, but power is not inherently a bad thing. You notice how our temptations are often not bad things, but good things in the wrong way, right? See, the, the devil is asking Jesus to compromise. These things are already promised to Jesus. Satisfaction, power, and the last one. I didn't want to spoil it. Love. Oh, there it is. Um, these are already promised to Jesus, and yet the devil is like, hey, compromise how you're going to get these, and I can meet these for you, right? So finally, Jesus is tempted with love. Now, if you look at the passage, I don't think that this one is as obvious. This is the part where it's like, hey, just throw yourself down and the angels will save you, right? But what is, what is the devil saying? See if God cares about you. He says that he would save you with these legions of angels. Why don't you test it? God will surely catch you, right? You're the son of God. That's what he says. You're the son of God, right? Jesus is being tempted to test God's care for him. The devil is questioning whether God even cares about him at all. Man, if I haven't been tempted with the same question the last couple of years, right? See, satisfaction, power, love, not bad things. Now, I want to quick aside, just because this is a really good quote, um, but I did want to just throw this in here. So Dr. King talks about power not being a bad thing. Um, and he says in his final book, where do we go from here? He says, power, properly understood, is the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, or economic changes. What is, an, what is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive, and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands for love. So, again, not inherently bad things, but it goes far deeper than these temptations, right? And so we have the temptations of Jesus, I think often are the temptations of us. And how does he meet him? He meets him with the word of God every time, which I'm not going to get into, but it's so good. So now I want us to think of like, this is not just Jesus being tempted in similar ways to us, right? I think there's a far deeper theological implication here. Let's think of Jesus' setting for a minute. Where is Jesus in all of this temptation right now? I'll ask you. Where is he? Wilderness, right? Yeah. He's in the wilderness. Who else was in the wilderness? I, th I think you said Israel. Yeah, I agree. The Israelites, right? How long was Jesus in? This was, you know, after the Exodus. How long was Jesus in the wilderness? 40 days. How long were the Israelites in the wilderness? 40 years, right? I don't think this is a coincidence. I think you guys know that, right? One more, because you know the quote at the beginning, man shall not live off bread alone, that Jesus says, right? Does anyone know where that is from? I'll tell you, so you all don't yell again. Deuteronomy, right? 
And Deuteronomy is referring to the manna that God provided in the wilderness. They were teaching them the spiritual lesson that man does not live on bread alone, but by the word of the living God, right? And so we have this direct correlation to the exodus, to the 40 years that the Israelites spent uh, in the wilderness, right? Okay, Jimmy, why is this important? I don't know why I always ask myself questions, but... um, Because what is the story of the Israelites in the wilderness, but a story of God redeems his people by his love, and then the people turn their backs on him immediately, right? Like Moses goes up the mountain and they build the golden calf ASAP. Time, time again, God shows his people that he loves them. And then it doesn't matter how much you do for us, God, we are bent on turning away from you, right? Every time. So Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, goes back to the wilderness and he does what we could never do. He faces the same temptations, the same emotions, the same enemy, and he does not fail. See, Jesus Jesus didn't just die the death that we deserve. We talk about that a lot, right? Like Jesus died the death we deserve. He did. But he also lived the life we couldn't. And that's just as important as his death, right? His death does not have meaning unless he lives that perfect life. We received his righteousness from his life, and he received our sin in his death. And not only did he not fail, but he now understands us, right? Look at Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, right? Double negative there, so it can be confusing. So what they're saying is, we do have a high priest who is able to empathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So then let us, here's the implication, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, right? The implication is not live a better life, although that happens. The implication is come to God as a result of this. You see that? Let us approach God's throne. Let us fellowship with him so that we may receive mercy and find grace through the Spirit in our time of need. Jesus sees us. He knows our struggle. He lived our struggle, and he has redeemed us from it. And then quickly, we have God the Father. So he feels sort of absent in this story, doesn't he? Like, so he's, he's mentioned a little bit. The devil mentions him when he calls Jesus the Son of God. Like, God will save you, won't he? And then Jesus mentions him when he quotes the verses. But we don't necessarily get, like, a, a picture into how God's feeling during this. And so I think sometimes we can assume the worst, that God is just absent in this situation. And then, I don't know if you're like me. I know I am. But we, like, will—thank you. I'm glad you guys got that. Um, we will, like— impute this situation of like, God is absent when Jesus needs him, therefore God is absent when I need him, right? I think there's a little bit of an an imputation there that happens often for me, particularly in these last couple of years. But we must know it's a lie, right? God cares about his son. In your temptation, in this dark season, God is not absent. I know there's a, it's a verse we all know and quote, But John 3.16 brings me great comfort in this passage, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. 
We get God's thoughts. He loved the world, therefore he gave his son. God acted because God loves us, the world. Do not believe the lie that he is absent. So in conclusion, God loves us. Excuse me, God the Father loves us. God the Son understands us and has redeemed us. And God the Spirit guides us. We have not been left to our own devices in the wilderness.